Welcome to Rise Up Firebird, a podcast about women who have transformed their lives. Such change can come in many forms. Some women are dreamers, some are challengers, others are navigators or survivors. But what all of these women have in common is that they never gave up on themselves. They forged their character and found their strength. In sharing these stories, I hope you gain inspiration to never give up on yourself either. The firebird flies to give hope to others. Scylla Black I can't say I'm surprised I was successful. I was determined and I got it. I remember looking through my dad's old LP collection in the early 90s and scanning the back of an album called Number Ones of the 60s. In fact, I still have it. There, amidst all of the familiar names, was one entry I did not expect to see. You're My World by Scylla Black. At the time, Scylla Black was the most popular presenter on the telly, with two prime time shows, Blind Date and Surprise Surprise. I assumed that this hit must have been a novelty track. With curiosity, I remember carefully lifting the arm of the record player to go straight to this song. As the sharp string melodies started to play, I assumed I'd selected the wrong track. It sounded so much more sophisticated than the theme tune music I expected. Yet once the opening lyrics, You're My World, started, I listened with amazement. It was incredible that this sultry, velvety tone came from the same voice I was used to hearing on a Saturday night, say, hello number two, what's your name and where do you come from? You're My World was in fact Scylla Black's second consecutive number one single, a feat that has not been matched by many other British female artists, such as Adele or Amy Winehouse. Her first number one, Anyone Who Had a Heart, was the biggest selling single by any British female artist in the 60s, beating competition from Dusty Springfield, Sandy Shaw, Shirley Bassey and Lulu. As I grew older, I realised it wasn't really a surprise that Scylla started her career as a pop singer. She emerged as part of the homegrown scene in Liverpool, alongside other famous acts such as The Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers. They were all talent-spotted and retained by their shared manager, Brian Epstein. What's more significant is how Scylla Black managed to become a renowned TV celebrity and have a 50-year career in show business. She shone in an industry which often favours younger women and after many other pop stars of the 60s had long been forgotten. Scylla transformed herself into the most successful and highly paid television presenter after reaching middle age and overcoming personal tragedy. Scylla's story shows the tremendous power of self-belief, but also, as her Liverpoolian contemporaries sang, we get by with a little help from our friends. Scylla Black was born in war-torn Liverpool in 1943. Aerial attacks from German bombs along the Docklands meant that housing conditions were overstretched and often substandard. 
Silla's family lived in a flat above a barber shop, next door to a Chinese laundrette in an impoverished area called Scotland Road. Back then, Silla was known as Priscilla Maria Veronica White. As Silla said, if you didn't have money in those days, you gave your kids extra names. Having the name Priscilla attracted attention, which Silla basked in as the youngest child with two older brothers. Silla said, My father adored me, I was the apple of his eye, and I thought, if I'm the apple of his eye, why can't I be the apple of everybody's eye? This confidence and love of adoration meant that Silla was a natural performer at family get-togethers, where having a sing-song provided entertainment for those like Silla's family who could not afford a television set. Silla would climb onto the table and sing for her amused relatives, whom she courted as if they were her fans. When they asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, Silla answered without any hesitation, I want to be a star. Instead of humouring her, her family always said in earnest that she was as good as anybody else and could be whatever she wanted to be. In particular, Silla's mother, who was known locally for her fabulous singing voice, encouraged her daughter's dreams. Silla said, My mother could easily have been in show business. She poured all of her ambition into me. She never tired of me, never told me to shut up. Later on, when I started singing in the clubs, I'd come in every night saying, I'm going to be a star. She never put me down. She said, of course you are. She always made me feel that I could do anything. Scylla was also influenced by her mother's determination and entrepreneurial spirit. Scylla's mother ran a market stall, selling clothes that she collected as cast-offs from wealthy neighbourhoods. As a child, Scylla would accompany her mother on these trips. Admiring the finery in the more affluent estates in Liverpool made Scylla ambitious for what she could one day achieve for herself. As a teenager, Scylla also assisted her mother on the stall and developed a rapport with the public. Being able to jibe and banter as a market trader was a perfect apprenticeship for what would later emerge as a career in show business. Scylla's dreams of stardom were encouraged by watching Hollywood films at the cinema, which provided much-needed escapism from the dreariness of the Liverpool docks. She also was an avid autograph hunter. Not having the money to see the acts at the Philharmonic Hall, she would wait outside with her best friend Pat, hoping to be noticed and have a passing exchange with a celebrity. One person who eluded her at the stage door, however, was Cliff Richard, who at the time was more popular in the UK than Elvis Presley. Not to be deterred, the teenage Scylla whistled for a taxi and paid a week's wages in pursuit of Cliff's mystery destination. Despite these efforts, Scylla and Pat were turned away at the door by a young local comedian named Jimmy Tarbuck, who unceremoniously told them both to get lost. Later in life, Scylla would be best friends with both Cliff Richard and Jimmy Tarbuck. However, at the time, such acquaintances were completely out of her league. After leaving school, Scylla fulfilled her schoolteacher's expectations 
who reported that she was suitable for office work by getting a secretarial job at British Insulated Company Cables. The job was as uninspiring as it sounds, and for Scylla it wasn't enough. Each lunchtime she escaped the boredom of the office by nipping to a music venue called The Cavern. There she would watch young local bands on her hour's break. Scylla even got a job there as a court attendant, not for the money, but to skip the outdoor queues, get a better seat and feel part of the scene. Then Scylla would return to work, where the rock and roll drum beat was replaced with the monotonous tapping of the typing pool. It was a time when Liverpool was buzzing with talent, as teenagers were enthused by the influx of American R&B records that arrived in the ports. Many were encouraged to start their own bands with the advent of skiffle music, where youngsters were able to learn only three chords on a cheap guitar to emulate their musical heroes. It started a particular style of music, which would later be known throughout the world as Mersey Beat. Scylla would learn the lyrics to songs either by buying the record or quickly writing them down from listening to them in a shop. She would practice singing in the bathroom of her parents' flat, which had newly been installed after years of having only an outside toilet. Scylla was surprised with the way she could copy the voices on the records and enjoyed many hours singing and posing in front of the mirror. Yet it was difficult for a girl to have an impact on the local music scene. The straight-laced expectations on women from the 1950s were only beginning to loosen. Scylla was the first to embrace the new ways, buying tight denim jeans from a catalogue and dyeing her mousy-coloured hair into a vibrant orange which she kept up throughout her life. Scylla loved hairdressing and was keen to practice on anyone who was willing. One lady was in fact Ringo Starr's mum. Scylla and Ringo would chat about music, while Scylla, often distractedly, forgot to wash away the dye or take his mother's rollers out in time. Scylla realised that hairdressing was not for her, but these chats with Ringo helped to spur on her bigger dreams. Ringo was already in a semi-professional band called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, widely considered to be the best in Liverpool at the time and this helped Scylla realise what could be possible. Ringo's real name was Richard Starkey, but he had earned his nickname from his ostentatious jewellery, which perfectly set off his slick hair and dapper clothes. Scylla was inspired by the way that Ringo embraced his image. He already believed and acted like he was a star. The combination of hanging around the clubs and her friendship with Ringo meant that Scylla was introduced to many of the local bands. She always made it known that she wanted to be a singer, and whenever anyone offered her the mic, saying, come on Scylla, give us a song, she accepted without hesitation. Scylla delighted in the blues rock numbers, but due to her nerves and stage fright, she made a habit of always chatting first to her audience. This natural repartee made fans warm to her even more. After Ringo joined the Beatles, John Lennon reluctantly allowed Scylla to sing a guest spot, introducing her on stage as Cyril. Yet after hearing her perform, John Lennon was impressed and told his manager Brian Epstein that Scylla was one to watch. Brian Epstein was a young record manager 
who was starting to promote local bands. It was a side hustle that on the back of the Beatles' success would make him one of the most powerful and well-known music managers in the world. All that, however, was still to come. At the time, Brian was well-known and locally respected as a man with good taste, with great connections in the music industry, who could financially support young acts to launch their showbiz careers. On John's recommendation, Brian agreed to audition Silla. This was the big moment Silla had been hoping for. Silla wanted to sing something sophisticated and decided upon the jazz song Summertime. The Beatles accompanied her and although they knew the chords, they played it in the wrong key for Silla's voice. Silla was left humiliated and before the performance had even finished, she already anticipated Brian's polite shake of the head. Silla had blown it. Whilst other acts left Liverpool and went on to bigger and better things, Silla remained working at the court stand in the cavern. Whilst hanging out at these music venues, Silla caught the attention of someone else who would later have an impact on her career and much of her life. Standing out in the crowd with his white blonde hair was Bobby Willis. He was initially attracted to Silla's vivacious personality, but once he heard her sing, he was smitten. Silla was curious and impressed by Bobby's claims to have a car and a job at a record label. In fact, neither were true. Bobby was trying to sound impressive to gain Silla's affections, yet he remained coy about his real talents, the fact that he was also a singer and a songwriter too. Bobby remained modest throughout his life about his own musical talents and was always content not only to let Silla shine, but to help her do so. He quickly became an escort for Silla to attend her upcoming gigs and gradually things progressed romantically for them both. Silla had initially been cool towards Bobby as she was determined not to be distracted away from her musical career. It was a time before birth control where accidental pregnancies were common and so Silla was extra cautious. She had no intention to marry or settle down without first pursuing her dreams. She said, the last thing I wanted was to fall head over heels in love and settle down before I proved myself. My heart really was set on becoming a singer and hopefully a star. Even though Scylla's heart was already claimed by stardom, she soon realised how much she depended on Bobby's emotional support and how much she valued it. The failed audition really dented her confidence and initially she had to hold on to Bobby's hand whilst on stage to get over her nerves. Soon the two became inseparable. After resisting for so long, Scylla realised that Bobby's love and support was exactly what she needed to be able to pursue her dreams. She said, Bobby always says nothing in the world can replace a hug. He is very much a security blanket, the rock I cling to. When I am upset, he'll put his arms around me and give me a big bear hug. He pays me compliments all the time, boosting my confidence. I am my own worst critic, and when I'm feeling low, I'll sit and run myself down. Bobby says, don't be silly, love. You just don't realise how good you are. Even though I've heard it a million times, it always makes me feel better. I totally believe in Bobby. 
When Scylla's self-belief wavered, Bobby's belief in her abilities was exactly what she needed to continue. Scylla got over the humiliation of her failure and continued with her singing performances in local venues whenever she got the chance. Then, just when she least expected it, Scylla's look changed. After enjoying herself on stage, she was approached again by Brian Epstein, who unbeknownst to her had been watching in the audience. He asked why Scylla hadn't performed like that in her audition. Before Scylla could respond, he instantly said that he wanted to sign her up as one of his acts. At this stage, Brian had established himself as a music mogul, and so his faith in Scylla was even more impressive. He had one suggestion to make. Her name, Scylla White, didn't sound like a star. It would be best to change it to Scylla Black. Scylla quickly agreed. Having a stage name was something she had dreamed of. As Scylla was 18, she needed her parents' permission to sign up to her management contract, which also required her to travel to London to record an album. Her parents hesitated. There was no way they were going to permit their only daughter to travel to London on her own. Luckily, her key chaperone Bobby was able to assist. Bobby offered to quit his own job at a bakery so that he could accompany Scylla. Scylla said, Bobby made it abundantly clear that whenever I shared a hope and dream with him, that if they came true, he'd want to be around, backing me up in any way I wanted him to. Entrusting their daughter into Bobby's care, Scylla's parents reluctantly signed Bryant's management contract and Scylla was finally able to say ta to her office workers. Although Bobby's presence was necessary for her parents' permission, it presented Brian with a problem. All pop stars had to maintain a public image of being officially single, as this seemed to improve their popularity with fans. Often Bobby was awkwardly cast aside in public, and his closeness to Scylla was explained as being her road manager. Even though this was a sham, Bobby did have an important role. He was always the one to help Scylla and provide support. Scylla said, After two shows at a theatre or club, I'd come back so hyped up it would take time to wind down. What I wanted was a nice glass of wine and a chip butty, or whatever the hotel could lay on at that unearthly hour. And it was nice to share that with somebody, somebody like Bobby. Scylla's first single, Love of the Loved, was a song written by her pals Lennon and McCartney. The B-side was one of Bobby's self-penned songs, Shy of Love. Bobby had taught Scylla the song by singing it to her at bus stops in the early days of their courtship. The record reached number 35 in the UK hit parade. As people tried to console Scylla, saying that she still had a top 40 hit, Scylla knew it was not good enough. Compared to the success of her fellow acts, who were creating Beatlemania and Merseybeat, Scylla felt that her efforts were an embarrassment. Scylla said, both her and Bobby had our dreams in the beginning. We aimed for the top. Sometimes, as a consequence of aiming high, you fall on the landing. At the same time, Bobby's skill as a songwriter was gaining attention. Bobby had a great singing voice and his white blonde hair gave him a striking appearance. It's perhaps not surprising 
that he was approached as possibly the next big star to come out of Liverpool. When asked, however, Bobby said their relationship only had room for one star, and that was Scylla. Scylla was always grateful for Bobby's decision, acknowledging that both her career and relationship with Bobby would never have survived without his loyal support and always putting her first. She sometimes laughed that Bobby was not the most typically romantic person, but he always acted with complete devotion at times when it really mattered. She said, The most romantic thing Bobby has ever done for me is giving up his career so that I could pursue mine. Bobby continued writing songs in the background and wrote all of the B-sides for Scylla's 11 hit singles. Brian Epstein knew that Scylla's next single would be crucial to launch her career. He had heard a US export of the song Anyone Who Had a Heart, sung by Dionne Warwick. Despite its popularity in the States, it had only made it to number 42 in the UK due to lack of radio airplay. Epstein knew that with the right singer, this song could make a dramatic impact. Yet it was considered at the record label that this powerful song required a diva and should not be wasted on a 19-year-old girl from Liverpool. George Martin, the Beatles producer, felt that it should be given to Shirley Bassey. Nevertheless, Brian insisted and used his power as the Beatles manager, his success was now stratospheric, to hold sway. Scylla's version went straight to number one. It sold over 100,000 copies a day and over 1 million copies in a week, making it one of the biggest selling hit singles of the 1960s. Scylla had done it on her own this time, without relying upon the increasingly popular Beatles as her songwriters. However, none of this would have happened without Epstein's conviction that Scylla was the right person for the song. This was followed by a second UK number one, You're My World, finally demonstrating something that Scylla had always longed for. She was a star. Despite Scylla's joy at her newly found fame, she initially struggled to adapt to show business. She was told by producers to modify her Scouse accent for a national audience. She was unfamiliar with TV cameras, once even dancing out of shot on a live performance, and was frequently homesick. Scylla was extremely busy, with over 400 live performances in eight months. She used all of this experience to watch others from the wings and learn the art of stagecraft. Yet even with these commitments, Scylla always made Bobby drive her home for her mother's Sunday dinner every week. Although it would have been sensible to have bought a London flat with her new earnings, Scylla resisted as long as she could, preferring to stay in the President Hotel in London. She said, I didn't want to put down roots and break the bond with Liverpool. Perhaps she also felt some fear and uncertainty on whether her luck would last. Anyone who becomes a celebrity wonders how long they will stay at the top and despite Scylla's tremendous self-belief, she had the same insecurities. She kept to her punishing schedule of live performances and UK tours with the aim of always keeping herself in the public eye. Yet there were limits on how long a female singer could stay in the spotlight. A typical pop career lasts between three to four years. Another British star, 
Helen Shapiro, had similar success to Scylla, but had gradually fallen through the charts and was now at the bottom of the billing. Scylla was determined that this would not happen to her and beseeched her manager, Brian, for what her next move should be. She worried that his attention was being taken up with managing the Beatles and that she would soon be forgotten about. These concerns were escalated when Scylla travelled to America in the hope of making a name for herself in the States. When she got there, Scylla felt truly neglected. She was introduced on the Ed Sullivan show where the Beatles had made their US breakthrough as being from Wales in England. Then the Burt Bacharach song, Alfie, which Scylla had recorded to woo American audiences, was released in advance by both Cher and Dionne Warwick. Scylla spent her evenings performing lounge acts for rich businessmen who had no idea who she was. She returned early to the UK, feeling lost and despondent. The contrast with the Beatles' success in the US couldn't have been more profound. Scylla had to wonder if Brian had used his American contacts to her best advantage and whether he was up to the job. Brian had always been tremendously supportive of Scylla, guiding her and Bobby through the demands of show business and the unfamiliarity of living in London. He continued managing Scylla alongside the Beatles long after he had let many of his other acts go, and Scylla relied upon him completely. For him, Scylla was the fifth Beatle. Yet at the time, Brian was going through his own personal struggles with his addiction to prescription drugs, overstretched work commitments and secret homosexual relationships at a time when they were still illegal in the UK. Scylla's recent experience in America had dented her confidence in him. When Brian then suggested that Scylla might be best suited in becoming a TV presenter, she was upset. Scylla felt that he had given up on her and did not believe that she could have another hit record. Brian tried to explain. It was true, every singer goes in and out of fashion and cannot be guaranteed a lifetime in the charts. But he had also spotted in Scylla the ability to become something different. Scylla had achieved what she had set out to be. She was a star, not just a singer. Her quick wit, infectious laugh and conversational ease meant that she had become a showbiz personality. She was ideally suited for television. He had seen something in Scylla that she had not even recognised in herself. The relationship between Brian and Scylla became increasingly fraught as Scylla struggled to see things from Brian's point of view. She felt underestimated and that Brian had chosen this career change because he had given up on her. It was therefore even more upsetting when Scylla found out that Brian had died suddenly in August 1967. Aged only 32, he had taken a fatal overdose of sleeping pills. There was speculation that his death might have been suicide, and there was no doubt that he was under a tremendous amount of stress at the time. On his bed, next to where he died, was a newly signed contract for Scylla to present her own TV show for the BBC. Scylla was overcome with emotion. After chastising Brian for not paying her enough attention, Scylla was one of the last people Brian thought about before he died. 
What's more, his encouragement was not idle talk. He truly believed that she could be a television presenter. The contract was proof. Rather than resist the change, Scylla now embraced it. Throwing herself into work was the way Scylla learned to cope with tragedy. She accepted the contract as a way to honour her friend, mentor and manager Brian, who had never stopped believing in her. Scylla's new TV show launched at the BBC in 1968. Scylla sang the theme tune music, Step Inside Love, written by her friend Paul McCartney. The change to TV prompted a new self-confidence that Scylla had never known. She had always wanted to be a star and assumed that this would be from singing. Yet as a TV presenter, she was a natural. Scylla instantly connected with audiences who warmed to her both in the studio and in their living rooms. All of the stagecraft she had developed from her gruelling live singing performances was now transformed into a playful ease in front of the camera. After the worry about how to sustain her singing career, Scylla was suddenly the highest paid performer on TV, beating the most popular act of the time, Morecam and Wise, who had to split their fee between them. As the 60s came to a close, there were many indications that marked an end of an era. The Beatles broke up, fashions and music changed, yet Scylla had remained on top by adapting to her new role. As is often the case, one life change led to many others. Seeing herself regularly on the big screen prompted Scylla to get a nose job to correct a bump she had had from a childhood accident. Yet the biggest change came from her relationship with Bobby. As Scylla's career expanded and she was left to drift in new and challenging waters, Scylla depended more and more on the man who had always been the anchor in her life. Since Brian's death, Bobby automatically stepped up to navigate Scylla's career, acting from a protective instinct rather than from any experience in the TV industry. He sat in meetings where the woman he loved was treated more like a product than a person, but his support of Scylla meant that he always looked after her best interests. Because they had met so young and Scylla had always been determined to put her career first, there had never been any expectations on where their relationship would lead to. However, their shared experiences meant that they had grown up together and this developed into a close and unwavering bond. Scylla said, Whenever I did go out without Bobby, I always found myself wishing I was with him. And whenever we spent time apart, he confessed he never stopped thinking about me. Neither of us had ever formed any other attachment since we first met, and it just became quietly accepted between us that we were in love and we both wanted to be together forever. This gentle acceptance led to them deciding to get married one day without any fuss. They booked a registry office and Scylla wore a dress that had already been hanging up in her wardrobe. When she invited her parents, they refused to attend, insisting that a registry wedding didn't count for anything. Scylla was torn. When it came to marrying Bobby, Scylla wanted a private affair without any showbiz fuss, and she knew this would not be the case if they postponed their plans for a church ceremony. Scylla and Bobby went ahead with their private civil service and later followed it up with a church blessing 
in Wilton, Liverpool, for their family to attend. Scylla's success almost became an obstacle for another longed-for wish, having a baby. With television schedules devised months, sometimes years in advance, there was no opportunity to have a child without upsetting these commitments. Although Scylla had put her romance with Bobby on hold until she was established, she did not have the same reservations when it came to motherhood. She reasoned that, if we wait until everything is right, it never will be. When she became pregnant with her son Robert, she accepted the financial consequences of breaching contracts and disappointing her fans. She said, As I lay in the clinic, cradling my firstborn in my arms, I was so happy, so totally fulfilled, I could hardly bear the hands of the clock to move. It had taken the birth of our first son for us to appreciate how blessed we really were. Despite the joy of motherhood, Scylla couldn't deny her own personality and her drive and ambition to work. During her maternity leave, she would do the hoovering in a sequin dress just to feel more like herself again, rather than just a mother. It was a dual role which was at odds with her upbringing, where women were expected to be content staying at home with the children. Scylla said, I loved Robert so much, it was sheer agony to miss any of these things. Yet I was also driven by something that was calling me back to performing. After much soul-searching, Scylla decided to get a nanny, which upset her own mother, who felt that it was not normal to have another person help in raising your child. The tabloids criticised Scylla's choice by saying she did not deserve an award for Personality Mother of the Year when she was relying upon a nanny. In her defence, Scylla said that her success meant that she was isolated from having the support of other young mothers around her. She said, Sometimes I wished I was a mum in Liverpool, surrounded by family, swapping advice, sending the kids to an ordinary school, but I was in a different world now. In her mother's generation, there would have been help at hand with communities of neighbours and aunties who were available to share the childcare. Scylla didn't have that, and getting a nanny was a substitute which enabled Scylla to get on with the rest of her other commitments, roles and ambitions. She said, When I was with Robert, I did everything for him, but I didn't think that I was the only person who could. My philosophy was simple. Good parenting is loving. If you have that, the rest will follow. I loved Robert, I loved Bobby, and I loved my work. As I saw it, I had a duty to my baby and to Bobby and to the people I entertained. Meanwhile, a nanny was essential. As long as he had us and wasn't passed willy-nilly to different people every day, I always trusted that he would take life in his stride. Managing motherhood with celebrity was something Scylla continued to juggle. However, there were new challenges. Complications with her second pregnancy arose while Scylla was on the circuit performing two shows a day. After intermittent bleeding and consulting the doctor, she continued her tour schedule, but worried each time she was on stage that she would bleed on her dress in front of the audience. After trying her best to continue, she consulted a second doctor who said that it was too late. Her second baby had died in the womb while Scylla was three months pregnant and had to be surgically removed. 
Bobby and Scylla kept their grief private and Scylla went back to work the next day, still in shock about what happened. She said, like so many women before and after me, I knew even if I was blessed with more children in the future, I would still grieve for that lost child for the rest of my days. Bobby and Scylla wanted a brother or sister for Robert, but as Scylla said, when you've lost one baby, you never have quite the same trust in yourself or in life that all will be well again. However, they both found the courage to try another time, and although there was a difficult labour, they were able to welcome their second son Ben the following year. Scylla and Bobby tried again, this time hoping for a daughter. Scylla said her prayers were answered when she became pregnant on a tour of Australia. Sadly, seven months into her pregnancy, she went into premature labour. Her longed-for baby daughter was born, but immediately rushed into intensive care. Her lungs hadn't developed strong enough, and she lived for only two hours. The only thing Scylla could do for her baby was to give her a name and plan for her funeral. They called her Ellen, and Scylla fixated over the name as the only thing that recognised her baby's existence. Whereas Scylla was always able to cope with her busy work schedule, she was now in complete despair. She shut herself away in a downward spiral of loss and guilt. Bobby also struggled with his grief and had to continue working to manage the various commitments that Scylla was now unable to fulfil. Their relationship suffered as Scylla refused to be comforted. She said, Bobby knew me inside out, always knew what was right for me, but now even he couldn't get through to me and I just couldn't listen to him. I shut him out and was very private in my grief. The actual sadness takes forever to fade and in the beginning you are quite selfish about it. When you see babies everywhere, you keep looking at their mothers and saying, why me? One day in frustration, Bobby argued back and said, well, why not you? What makes you so special? This is what Scylla needed to hear to realise that there were others who also had the same experience. In fact, she learned that 10,000 babies in England and Wales each year don't survive their first seven days. Although the heartache never went away, it gave Scylla the perspective she needed to recover. She got involved in a charity called Birthright, which helps children born with birth defects, and did television appeals to fundraise for new heart monitors that could prevent future deaths. After losing her daughter, many advised Scylla to wait before trying again for another baby. Scylla waited a year, but was keen to have another child. Year on year, Scylla's attempts were met with disappointment. It took six years before Scylla was pregnant again. By this time, she was 37 years old, and doctors advised that she was at risk of having a child with special needs. Despite many well-wishers who advised that she shouldn't continue with the pregnancy, Scylla was adamant that she would have her child at any cost. For the first time in her life, Scylla was prepared to give up her career if it meant having a baby that required special care. Happily, their fourth child, Jack, was born healthy and well, but this experience reaffirmed Scylla's priorities towards her family. Once Scylla's private life had settled, 
her public image started to fade. Her TV variety show Scylla had ran from 1968 to 1976. But as Scylla said, if you want to stay on top or just in the race, it's essential to keep reinventing yourself and trying out new things. However, it was not obvious to anyone what the new thing should be. Bobby was approached with various offers for Scylla to take over presenting well-known TV shows such as Family Fortunes. Scylla was happy to consider, but Bobby stood firm. He said, Scylla, you're not standing for anyone, and insisted that she should have her own tailor-made television show. Negotiations continued for eight years, while Scylla was mainly out of the public eye. As Scylla was approaching her 40th, she prepared to accept that her star may have waned. Then, ten days before her birthday, Bobby approached her wavering a contract in his hands for a new show called Surprise Surprise. This is the one we've been waiting for, Syl, he said. Surprise Surprise was a novel format, mixing tear-jerking family reunions with comedy sketches, phone-ins and syllograms where good deeds were recognised. It was an emotional roller coaster with a guaranteed feel-good factor. It mixed lifetime television with pre-recorded sketches filmed with members of the public. It showed Scylla in her element, able to chat easily to people on the street and ad-lib when required in the studio. However, things were not all plain sailing. Before the very first live episode, Scylla collapsed and banged her head. Determined that the show must go on, she received six pints of blood before coming out to do the live show. It was later discovered that Scylla had a cervical tumour which needed to be removed with a hysterectomy. Scylla had the operation whilst continuing with the show's demanding schedule. Her dedication paid off as surprise surprise became a staple of Sunday night television and Scylla's charisma and ability to act with spontaneity impressed TV executives. This led to Scylla being approached to host her next major TV success, a show that I remember watching as a child called Blind Date. Scylla played Cupid for hopeful singles in a game show format where prospective dates answered questions behind a screen before the matched couple were whisked away for a date at a glamorous location. This show was so popular and good-natured that families could watch it together with both children and grandparents enjoying the fun. It was no small achievement that Scylla Black was able to have this appeal. Carefully navigating the slight innuendo and intrigue, Scylla was able to direct the mild flirtation of her contestants so that the show never became slighted with smuttiness or meanness. It was prime time Saturday night television, which meant that in the 80s and 90s, Scylla Black was once again the highest paid and most popular female television presenter. At the first blind date wedding, Scylla was finally able to wear one of the hats she threatened to wear throughout the series. As the vicar said, and for the wedding of Lillian and David, we must thank God and Scylla. Scylla reported back that it was the first time she had ever had second billing. Blind date was a national sensation and Scylla was the undisputed star. A few days before her 54th birthday, 
she was awarded an OBE for services to stage and television. Throughout making her comeback, her husband Bobby continued to be her personal and professional support. He looked after Scylla in executive boardrooms, but was also there by her side at every studio performance. She said, I always felt that if I couldn't look across the room and see his face, I'd die inside. He really was the most selfless person and the one whose judgment I trusted the most. He was the only critic I really listened to, the only person who was really honest with me. We didn't even have to talk. He always stood at the back of the studio when I was recording Surprise Surprise and Blind Date, and we had secret signals, like a tennis player and her coach. We were so close, we were almost joined at the hip. Despite Scylla's status and public fame, at home she remained very much Mrs Willis. She was happiest at home, without anyone's company, except of course Bobby's. She said, even after all the years of marriage, we would still sit on the sofa holding hands, watching the telly and having a hug. There was nothing better for me at the end of a long day than cuddling up to Bobby. Both Scylla and Bobby said that their marriage was a lot like Scylla's career, something that they were both committed to work on 24 hours a day. Whilst Scylla's career was better than she could ever have imagined, tragedy began to strike in her personal life. Her eldest son, Robert, was involved in a car accident that killed a motorcyclist, Richard Potter, who left behind an 18-month-old daughter and a partner who was three months pregnant with his son. His passenger was also badly injured. Scylla was caught in a tabloid frenzy over her lack of response to the victim's family, which she later explained was because she was protecting her son and advised by the police and insurers not to comment. The mounting bad publicity meant that Scylla was unable to accompany the inquest to support Robert, in fear that her presence would create a media storm. Robert was charged with driving below a reasonable standard of care and was fined £250, but no one was able to forget the personal grief caused to everyone involved. Shortly after, Scylla's mother died, and although she was 84, Scylla was not prepared for the devastating loss this would cause. She described her mother as a driving force in her life, someone who had believed in her from the beginning. All of the attributes that had been key to Scylla's success, her singing voice, her work ethic, her determination, were all inherited from her mother. Scylla said that when her mother died, it felt that she had lost a part of herself. It took Scylla many years to cope with the loss. She said, I was full of anger after she died because I couldn't bear the fact that she had been in pain for so long and that all the money in the world couldn't help her. Yet the greatest loss was still to come. After feeling unwell with a ticklish cough, Bobby was sent to the doctor at Scylla's insistence. After numerous tests, it was discovered in March 1999 that he had an aggressive tumour on his liver, which could only be treated with chemotherapy. Whilst Bobby was undergoing treatment, Scylla struggled to hold it together. They had always done everything as a team in both their home and professional life. Suddenly, there were so many firsts that Scylla had to do on her own. 
One day she called Bobby in the hospital and said, I don't know how to walk the dogs. Don't worry, he replied. They know the way. They'll walk you. He also encouraged Celeste to continue to work, knowing that it was the refuge she had always found to cope with grief. Celeste said, I have to get out there and make them love me. I don't know why this is, and maybe some people will think it's needy or sad, but this is the kind of work I do, and doing it at this time helped me get through some of the darkest days of my life. Until then, Bobby had always been with Scylla as part of a double act. Now he was no longer there at the back of the auditorium, silently supporting and encouraging her. Instead, he was fighting for his life in a hospital bed. Sadly, by October 1999, Bobby lost the fight and died at the age of 57. Scylla was without her friend, husband, manager and her best and most loyal supporter, who had been by her side every step of the way. After losing her own mother so recently, Scylla worried about the effect Bobby's death would have on her boys. She went on a health kick to get herself in shape and look after herself. She said, When they lost their dad, I realised that I was all they had left. I wanted to look after them. I didn't want them to become orphans. I need all of them to be married and settled before anything happens to me. I'm much braver now because I have to be. I thought I was invincible, infallible, but you find out you are not. It happens to all of us, and there is a good in that, for it helps you to face your fears head on. Scylla continued her career, and her son Robert stepped into his father's shoes to become Scylla's new manager. Without Bobby, Scylla had to negotiate with the TV executives on her own, battling to change the TV schedules so that Blind Date was not ousted by the football results, and defending the show against proposed changes to the format. After 18 years, she decided to resign from Blind Date live on TV. Nobody knew that she had made her decision, and Scylla was full of nerves as to whether or not she could go through with it. She said, What I remember most... There was looking up at Robert, who was sitting exactly where Bobby used to sit, and he gave me a thumbs up, just as Bobby would have done. For a moment, it was as if he had morphed into Bobby. Even after his death, the memory of Bobby gave Scylla the strength she needed. Scylla said, When Bobby died, I had to grow up very quickly. I used to say that I would retire if he died, because I didn't want to do substandard work and I thought that without him, I would quickly become substandard. I never thought I could do it without him, but I can and I do. It's what Bobby would have wanted. I was so loved and looked after. Even though Scylla put on a brave face in public, she suffered with the ongoing loss and was often caught unaware with this devastating grief. She said, Sometimes I cry so much I can hardly breathe. Until the day she died, she often said Bobby was her first thought on waking up and her last thought upon going to sleep. For the next 25 years of her life, Scylla learned to live alone. She found comfort in her friends, most notably Paul O'Grady, who she met as his alter ego Lily Savage on the Parkinson show shortly before Bobby's death. Their rapport was instantaneous 
so much so that in between their infectious laughter and conversation, Parkinson asked if he could get his show back. There were other friends and allies too, Christopher Biggins, Dale Winton, Cliff Richard and Jimmy Tarbuck all rallied to help, accompany her on holiday or take her on a night out. Nothing could replace the loss of her husband, but Scylla sought enjoyment in the other things that life had to offer. On her 60th birthday, she debated whether to buy herself a half million pound diamond ring or a Ferrari. Then she realised she could afford both, and she bought them, thinking that's what Bobby would have wanted. Yet there were always moments of sadness that would unexpectedly catch up with her, and which she learnt to accept. She said, There is absolutely no rehearsal for the effect of grief. The bad days still happen, but I never know when they'll strike. That's grief, and I'm used to it now. I've learnt to accept it, and I know that it will pass. I've got no solutions, except to say that you have to give in to it, but I know that it's not going to be like that forever. When Scylla learned that she was dying, she saw it as a relief from the loneliness that she could never shake off from Bobby's death. She died in Spain in August 2015. She was later buried in Allerton Cemetery, Liverpool, at the same church that her marriage to Bobby was blessed in 46 years ago in 1969. Sometimes love really does last a lifetime, perhaps even longer. Sadly, the price of love is grief. The greater the love, the more devastating its loss. Looking at Scylla's life, it is clear that she never had any doubt about what she wanted to be. She was confident in her talents, determined to succeed, and had one aim in mind, to become a star. Yet, throughout her life, there were always others there to help her. There were occasions when Scylla faltered, suffered, and had her doubts. In these moments, her loved ones were always there to bolster her resolve and support her. Sometimes having self-belief is not enough. What's also important is the belief that others have in you. At every turn, there was someone there to encourage, support and assist Scylla to overcome her failures and tragedies and achieve her ambitions. As John Lennon's wife Yoko Ono once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is a reality. Scylla's dreams came true because of the other people in her life. What's also significant is that as much as Scylla believed in herself, she never had any hesitation in telling others what she wanted to be either. How often do we secretly have a dream, but we are too reluctant to admit it to ourselves, never mind to other people? Do we fear sharing our dreams with other people because we think that they will laugh at us or think us foolish? What if they wanted to help and support us instead? Very often our dreams never stand a chance because they are never aired in public. If we fail to release our dreams into the world, they can't come into existence. Scylla Black never had that fear. She told people what her dreams were and this enabled other people to help her. We've often heard the expression, if you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? Well, Scylla's story adds something further to that message. If you don't tell people what your dreams are, how do you expect people to help you achieve them? Scylla's journey shows 
how important it is to have those people in your life. The only way it's possible for someone to believe in you and what you're doing is first to be honest with yourself and then tell others what you want to achieve. So don't just dream big. Be confident. Take a breath. Give those dreams some life and tell people. As Scylla's story shows, we all need people like this in our life. Sometimes talent is not enough. To quote a well-known Liverpudlian saying, we need to remember that you never walk alone. Thank you for listening to Rise Up Firebird with Grace O'Carolyn. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can find me under grace underscore O'Carolyn for details of forthcoming episodes. The music is Brahms Cello Sonata in F, played by John Michelle and available under the Winky Media Commons license. Please join me for another episode of Rise Up Firebird when I'll be giving details of the next woman who has transformed her life. In the meantime, I hope this gives you the encouragement you need to rise, spread your wings and fly. Rise up, Firebird. <laughs>